0: Go ahead and take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful back there. I would really encourage you to to grab one if you don't. Um, It's important to see the words before you. See that I'm not making the things up that I'm saying, but that they're they're there. Um, We go to God's Word as our compass. It is our source of understanding of who God is. We don't have another one, Um, and so this morning it would be profitable for you to have the text in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's for you. Take that, Um, and if you do need a new copy of God's Word, take that as well. As we're in the throes of the summer months now, um, and our, our group is maybe a little smaller than usual. This morning's text is going to be uh, incredibly important for us this morning as we think through uh, a level of faithfulness that is being demonstrated throughout the book of Ruth. Um, the reason that uh, the reason that I think this text is so important is because the hidden discipleship elements that that are below the surface of what's happening here. Oftentimes we go to the Bible and we read Scripture and we see a particular person shown to us and displayed, and oftentimes we want to redeem some of the qualities of this individual. Well, we saw some redeemable qualities in Naomi in the past and some things that we've looked at and said, Naomi is someone who understood the, uh, the, the cost of discipleship and especially in calling Ruth back. And She was a tool in the hand of God and using uh, it, he used her to show Ruth something profound about who he is and called her to faithfulness as we've seen in chapter 2. We see this morning that the character Naomi kind of takes a step away from that and acts impatiently. Let's read the text. Actually, let's read, let's read the first 13 verses. No, let's read the whole chapter. Why not? It's only 18. Let's go. Chapter 3, Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make, your, do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and cover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. May, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman." And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize, before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, not be, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, For the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. As we look at this text, I'm going to give you where we're going right away. I'm going to give you where we're going right away. And I'm going to give you two words that seemingly are contradictory, but are important for us as, uh, as an expression of the local church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Two words that seem, uh, that seem like I said, contradictory. Those two words are patient urgency. Patient urgency. We think about this text and we see what's happening here. We see the opposite of that. We see some impatient urgency happening on the part of Naomi. Before we get to chapter 3, we see where Naomi and Ruth are. Things seem to be looking up for them. Ruth's encounter with Boaz was an exceedingly positive one in chapter 2. We spent three weeks there unpacking that. And he showed her incredible favor. But the author leaves some details of the story. And we haven't begun to yet explore this because we'll do that over the course of this week and next. The author leaves some ambiguity here for us to understand, to begin to know uh, what's happening. We we should be asking ourselves the question, Boaz shows Ruth this favor. Is there a budding romance here? What's what's happening? Does he favor her not only just with what he gives her, but does he have eyes for her? The answer is potentially. Potentially that's true, but it appears that that idea, that concept was also ambiguous to Naomi. And so her mind as a human being, as a sinful person, kicks into full gear and says, let's go into full planning mode here. There's urgency that needs to happen. We need to seize this moment. This needs to happen. Something needs to happen right now. The the harvest is over. If we go right back up the page to the end of chapter 2, we see that the harvest is over. And if the harvest is over, then that means their source of food is also done. There's not going to be any more gleaning. The barley and the wheat harvest, they're done. And so Naomi says, what do we need to do to survive But then also, is there an opportunity here for, and we see it right in the text, is there an opportunity here for for Ruth to enter rest? So there's three kind of ideas that we're going to touch on this morning. And as we think about these things, I I want you to keep Proverbs 16.9 in the back of your mind. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord established his steps. That proverb plays itself out right before our eyes in chapter 3. So the three things that we're going to look at, we're only going to take two this morning. We're going to look at the next one next week. The three things are this. First, a misplaced identity. Secondly, the priority of patience. And third, the righteous response, again, which we'll bite off next week. So the first thing in this text that we see, a misplaced priority. And I'm drawing on one particular statement that Naomi ma- makes, right? When we look at the end of the chapter 2, again, the harvest is over. And so Naomi's asking the question, what's next? What's going to come next? What's the next step here? We wonder that. Naomi wonders that. This is the third act of a four-act book her statement in verse one seems well-intentioned. When we get to verse one, he says, "Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, saw her, said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you?" That seems like a good mother-in-law. That is a good mother-in-law to say, "May, may, may my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you?" That, that's a well-intentioned statement. Now, when we look at that, something that we need to understand when we come to this text, and this word especially rest, that rest is not something that we think about often. Not in this way at least, or at least apply in a particular place in our lives. Naomi doesn't mean rest from gleaning or the hard work that comes in the field. What Naomi is saying is that she has marriage, And childbearing in view for Ruth. And in her ancient society, and even in ours residually, in our society, in that society, a woman's worth was bound up in both marriage and childbearing. And so when, when Naomi sees the potential for that to possibly come into place for Ruth, she says, here you go. Here's an opportunity. Let's go. Let's seize this opportunity. This is an opportunity for rest for you. This is an opportunity for you to assume the task that has been assigned to you by our society. This is an opportunity for you as a woman in our ancient society to, uh, to seize your identity. To be made into something now that everyone says that you should be. And that would mean that you would be able to then now quote unquote rest. We we get this idea in our society. Our society places a high emphasis on work. Our society primarily puts our identity in our work. As Americans, as Westerners, we regularly ask the first, when we meet someone, the first question we may ask them is, what do you do? What do you do? I found this, uh, an opinion piece by Heather Long in The Guardian this week. She wrote this a couple of years ago. She says, "In the U.S., we're obsessed with people's jobs. We want to know all about it. We insist that we tell, that you tell us what career tribe you're in: white collar, blue collar, new high techy collar. What's your exact title? How do you spend your day? Are you someone who speaks the language of law, tech, finances, media, marketing, education, military, government, the arts, cetera? Basically." We would like everyone to walk around with their business card attached to their forehead, but since that's a bit over the top, we try to glean the same information by asking questions, oftentimes lots of them, about your work. The idea of rest in this ancient society and the idea of rest in our society is tied up in what we are meant to do. The more you have the ability to do what you believe you are meant to do, the more rest you will have. That's the idea here. When we can't work in our society because our society is a work-based identity or has assigned us a work-based identity, when we can't work, we feel restless. You know that. You know when you get sick and when you get set aside for a time period, you feel restless because our society tells us that your worth is found in what you do. The reality is this is a misplaced identity. The reality is what what, what what Naomi says to Ruth is a faulty premise and needs to be rethought. Rest isn't just coming to the, long, the, uh, the end of a long day and crashing on the couch. The biblical understanding of rest is two things, full awareness of your identity and the finality of it. Full awareness of an identity and finality of it. We have to ask the question, based on what we find here in Scripture, who are we? Or I'll ask you the question, who are you? It gives you a handful of things, more than a handful of things. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, fully accepted by God, an ambassador of Christ. You're a member of the body of Christ. You are together the dwelling place of God. No longer a slave, but a friend. These are all identities that you've been given through Scripture if you are in Christ. And we could go on to that list. That list does not end there. But first, what gives you the ability to rest in these things is the ability to have the full awareness of them. There is an ability to have full awareness of these things. Why? Because your awareness of these things comes from an external source, not from an internal one. Your ability to understand what it is that you are meant to do and meant to be can come through God's word. God's word is inerrant and it's infallible. And if we look at this and we say, these are the identities. If I'm in Christ, these are the things that this book, that these words say that I am. If we look at that and we say, nope, that's not me. That's not who I am. Then we've called God a liar. We've denied that God's word is without error or infallible because, well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. That's a post truth understanding of God's word. So we've read what scripture says about us. We can have full awareness of it. We can be fully aware of it. And second, then, what gives us the ability to rest in these things is that they are final. And what I mean is that there is no work, no more work necessary. There is no more work necessary for you to have this identity in Jesus Christ. There is no more work necessary. Jesus' work is completely sufficient for you to be called a child of God. It's completely sufficient for you to be called a co-heir with Christ. Completely sufficient for you to be fully accepted by God, an ambassador of Christ, no longer a slave but a friend. The body of Christ, the dwelling place of, of God. Nothing on, else on earth can give you full awareness and finality in an identity. Nothing can. If your identity is wrapped up in a hobby, if you identify with a hobby or a job or your marriage or your parenting, there is always something more to learn, new equipment to obtain, another proficiency to develop. Those things are not final. They are ongoing. Do you ever hear, like, you're never done doing laundry, right? Right? Something's always getting dirty, and you're always continuing to do laundry. That's what it's like to find your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. There is no finality in that. You will always have a dirty article of clothing to put in the washing machine. But in Jesus, he says it's finished. There's nothing more that you have to add to this. There's nothing more that can be done. You could be fully assured of it because I did the work. And so we can truly know rest. We can truly know rest. If you're a Christian, if you feel restless this morning, if you're a Christian, what you need to not do is pour yourself into doing something. Rather, you need to meditate on the finished work of Christ that gives you full awareness and finality in your identity. Does that mean that as Christians we don't work hard? No. It means we work harder than everybody else. That's what it means, because it gives you the freedom to work harder than anybody else when you can say, no longer is my assurance wrapped up in what I do, but in what Jesus did. No longer is the thing that I need to achieve capable, or am I capable of doing that thing? Rather, it is Jesus Christ. It means that we work harder than anyone, and we are joyful about our work, and we are content in it. We're not weighed down with the burden of producing the impossible. The impossible is enough work to get right with God. And make no mistake, while it doesn't seem like our society cares much about God, we want to prove our worth, and we want to prove that we can get somewhere by working in our society. And so we find our identity there. And so we see that while it was probably well-intentioned, Naomi's goal for Ruth in verse 1, when she says, My daughter should not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. Her goal here <laughs> was misguided. She's essentially saying, When you achieve your childbearing identity, then you will have rest. That's what she's thinking. Is this our mentality? Is this our mentality for ourselves? When I achieve my fill-in-the-blank mentality, when I achieve this thing, then I'll have rest. When my child goes to college and gets a degree, will my child achieve rest? When I get the job that pays X amount of dollars, will I achieve rest? When I get this thing or that thing and finally have it, Will I achieve rest? The problem with thinking about this is where we're going next. And what we see played right out in Naomi's actions in the plan that she proposes to Ruth. A misplaced identity leads us to impatience. And so from this text, then we see the priority of of patience. So we see Naomi concocting this plan, right? She says in verse 3, "'Wash, therefore, take a bath.'" That's not something that happened very much in the ancient world. "'Take a bath, anoint yourself, so put on some perfume, "'put on a cloak, put on your best clothes, "'and go down to the threshing floor. "'But do not make yourself known to the man "'until he finishes eating and drinking. "'But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, "'then go and uncover his feet where he lies.'" Then go or, uh, and lie down, excuse me, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, "All that you say, I will do." Now, if you're reading this and you're thinking to yourself, what is going on here, you're probably in good company because it's not clear what's going on here. It's not really clear what this, this plan is all about. You may read in a place or two that this is some kind of ancient ritual. I, I, I don't think so. This is weird. This is a weird plan. Naomi comes up with a, a real head-scratcher here. But remember, she's misplacing identity and pushing someone out of urgency into a place uh, that might be, as we see in a moment here, compromising. Is Naomi asking Ruth to be sexually suggestive? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, is she tried to trap Boaz into something? Maybe. It seems unclear. We should just like assign a couple of words to this. One, it's risky, and two, it's reckless. She does a couple of things here that are risky and reckless. And this is what I'm talking about when I said at the beginning. Sometimes we see things here, and we're so desperate to put these people or, or to view them in a positive light that sometimes we take actions like Naomi makes here and says, well, that was probably the right thing to do. No, it wasn't. This is not the right thing to do. She put Ruth at risk. The hallmark of reckless and risky planning is that it's impatient. right? Misguided identity, misplaced identity, puts you in a place where you are willing to be impatient and jump forward in something when the time is not yet right. And it seems as though when Naomi asked the question, what next?, She jumps the gun. She jumps the gun, and it leads to this reckless and risky plan. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen reckless and risky in this book. That clock is so far off. I was like, oh, my goodness. Okay, all right, we're good. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, This is not the first time in this book that we've seen reckless and risky. Na, uh, Ruth's response to Naomi calling her to count the cost of following her back to Bethlehem is, in our minds, reckless and risky also. Naomi essentially says to Ruth in that moment, which makes this so funny, she essentially says to her, there's no guarantees if you follow me back to Bethlehem in chapter 1. You, I don't have another son. I, don't, I can't give you someone to marry who could potentially give you children. I don't have those things for you, so if you follow me back, you've got to understand that there's no guarantees. And you're just going to have to be cool with that. And Ruth says, I am. Let's go. Seems reckless, seems risky. Now, there's a couple of things that are different about what Ruth says in that moment and what Naomi says here in this plan. First of all, Naomi's plan here in chapter 3 is, uh, is uh, risking godliness and purity. It's problematic from that standpoint. Ruth's response to the reckless and risky is risking only earthly things, only temporary things. Things that can't ultimately offer her satisfaction or contentment. And so when we get here, we think to ourselves, wow, this is reckless, this is risky. We've seen that before. I think the author wants to contrast those two things. There is a way in this life to move forward in a reckless or risky way. You know that you have to take risks in this life. But the question is, moving, moving towards what? What are you risking? Am I risking earthly things, or am I risking putting myself in a compromising position? And am I risking godliness, purity, integrity? So impatience, like we've said, often leads us to do rescue, rec, reckless and risky things. And we find ourselves in compromising positions from time to time. When we move, we misplace our identity, and when we act impatiently as a result, oftentimes we find ourselves in a path of unbelief and sin. Let me give you a couple of examples that came to mind. Maybe it's moving forward in a major purchase too quickly and then making compromises and either giving it to the local church or skimming off the top, being generous, skimming off the top at work. Make it all come together. we got to make it all come together. Maybe it's putting yourself in the path of someone who isn't your spouse, and you wind up engaging in a way that's emotionally or physically compromising. Maybe it's giving in to sexual desires, gratifying the flesh, clicking through on a pornography site rather than patiently pursuing your spouse. Maybe it's fudging the numbers of years of experience on a resume, we had to make a decision this week about a movie that our kids wanted to see badly. And just because of reviews, we saw that there were some scary things and maybe some inappropriate things for five- and three-year-olds. We had to tell them no. Now, the, the reality of it is that in my own heart, it's not something that I wanted to say no to. I wanted to give them the opportunity to view this, this film. I couldn't in good conscience, though, put my kids in front of it, so we said no, and we said, you need to be patient. When you're older, we'll, we'll revisit this conversation. It's more important for my kids to learn patience than instant gratification. Where, where do I want my children to find their identity? In Jesus Christ, or in the ability to do the things that they think they should do whenever they want to do them? It's more important for my kids to, to be patient And for us to be patient in the way we raise our kids, rather than putting them in the path of sinful, scary, risky, and reckless. And again, in an instant society, we regularly led to believe that we deserve that thing right now. We deserve that thing right now. Naomi saw this window of opportunity for rest for Ruth. And she acts impatiently. She's willing to take risks to bring it about. Jesus says it best in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Jesus says this to his followers. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That does not sound like instant gratification. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would say, who would ever save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Friends, make no mistake. When we're talking about impatience and misplaced identities, we're, we're, we're talking about the fact that our souls are at stake. We're talking about the fact that, that, that our soul, Jesus says it right here. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he acts impatiently, if he gives into a society that says, you should be gratified in this moment. Jesus says, your soul is at stake. What shall a man give in return for his soul? What are we willing to be impatient for? Our souls are at what's, what's at stake. Where will you be impatient? Where will you pu- push when you should wait? Where will you compromise in the here and now? Where will you put yourself in the path of sin? The remedy to all of this is simply to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord. To take those things to God. Psalm 27, 13 and 14 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The psalmist believes that he will see God's goodness. He hasn't yet. But he's willing to be patient for it. It's good to have a plan but a plan without patience will make compromises. We mentioned the last thing that we'll talk about. We'll see Boaz's righteous response in the second half of chapter three. We'll get there. To this reckless and risky plan, Boaz responds in the way that we hope he would. But this morning I have a couple of concluding thoughts before we move to the Lord's table. What can we take away from this text this week? I think here are some very direct pointed applications that we can find here uh, first of all if your identity is misplaced you will never find rest if your identity is misplaced you will never find rest jesus says in matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 he says this popular passage come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now if we take and apply our understanding of rest that we cultivated at the beginning of our time together, we'll see something very profound here. When Jesus gets to Matthew chapter 23 and verses 2 through 4, he tells us that he's talking about the religious leadership. He tells us when he says, come to me for rest, he's talking about rather than the religious leadership of the day. He says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they <laughs> preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty, then is a shot at the religious leadership. It's a shot at the religious leadership. They heap tasks on people, although they are unwilling to perform those tasks themselves. Jesus isn't saying nothing is required of you if you follow him. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying nothing is required of you if you follow him, but rather that he is willing and able to perfectly shoulder the burden, unlike the religious leaders who did not practice what they preached. The one-to-one correlation between these two ideas is not the church, is not the religious leadership in our day, but what our culture and society says, what our culture and society claims. We give our culture, the people who Jesus was speaking to, his followers, gave the religious leadership the loudest voice in their life. We as people, as 21st century Christians, tend to give the culture the loudest voice in our life. And so when the culture says, your goal should be this, your identity should be here, you should live like this, this is where you should send your kids to school, this is how you should conduct your marriage, these are all of the things that you should be doing, Jesus is speaking directly to that because when the culture tells you that, the burden that comes along with that is unwilling to be borne by the culture itself. The culture preaches you a message that it can't practice itself. The culture can't find full awareness and finality in the identity that they tell you that you should have. Jesus Christ can, and he does. He bore the weight of sin that you could not. His work is final. Yours will never be. Trust him. That's the reality of what's going on here. When we read this, we say, yeah, the religious leadership, they sucked. They were people that got it all wrong so so true in our society the religious leadership in our society that's not what Jesus is saying the burden that society the the loudest voice in our culture gives you is the one that you should fully be rejecting in place of Jesus Christ and the message that he preaches he can shoulder the burden he can practice what he preached and he did it so perfectly and he says you could have it it's yours I'm concerned that many of us in this room are chasing after false and faulty identities. That next thing around the corner is going to give you rest. That when you get that promotion or you lose that weight or those things look good and I'm going to go get those or your retirement account reads a particular number, when you get that degree, then you'll be able to rest. If you find your identity in Jesus, you will be free to work with those things while being able to find contentment in the exact spot that you're at. Whatever number that retirement account reads, however many credits you have towards that degree, you'll be able to rest and be content in the exact spot that you are. If you're saying, yeah, but what does that actually look like? We talk about like finding our identity in Jesus. What does that mean? That's a, blah, an ethereal thought. Give me something more concrete. Ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself these questions. Am I fixated on material or temporary statuses? Am I frequently denying that there is sin in my life? Am I trying to project an image that I have it all together? Are my goals the goals that the world says I should have? Am I spending time only with believers who are like me? There's a list of five questions that should get you started. Think about that. Think about these things. Okay, so why these questions are here? Because if we honestly assess ourselves and the answer to is yes to one or several of these, we're not finding our identity in Jesus, but we're taking on or trying to take on the identity that the world has told us that we should have. Rather, if you identify with Christ, you ask the question, am I fixated on material or temporary statuses? We'll, we'll go, we'll say, yes, but I understand the truth that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Or if we ask ourselves the question, am I frequently denying sin in my life, that there is any sin in my life, that we understand that we look to First 1 John 1, 1.8 that says, if we say that we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us if we ask ourselves the question and the answer is yes, am I trying to project an image that I have it all together? Would we treat that with Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, you understand that nothing should be done from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. If you ask yourself the question, are my goals the goals that the world says I should have? Are the goals that I have the goals that the world says I should have? We understand that, 1 John 2, 15. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And we ask the question, am I only spending time with people who share the same affinities as me? Only people who are like me. Then we must recall Colossians 3.11, there is no Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Buffalo City Church, if you identify with this as your church home, your material and temporary statuses will leave you empty and bogged down. Unrepentant sin will leave you empty and bogged down. Your pride, self reliance, self centeredness will leave you empty and bogged down. Your love of the world and pursuit of worldly accomplishments will leave you empty and bogged down. Ignoring people who are different from you will leave you empty and bogged down. Instead, Meditate on the truth of the gospel and see how an identity in Christ flows from the truth that Jesus Christ, the righteous son of God, came to earth and lived a perfect life and died the death that you deserved so that you may spend eternity in the presence of God. So that's the first idea this morning. In conclusion, if your identity is misplaced, you will never find rest. Secondly, be patient in your planning. Be patient in Your planning. Impatience is the result of that misplaced identity again. It's no coincidence that Paul lists patience in the fruit of the Spirit. It's no coincidence. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces patience in us. In an instant society, impatience runs rampant. So ask yourself this question. Where am I being impatient that is setting me on the path of potential sin? Ask yourself this question. Where am I being impatient that is setting me on the path of potential sin? Humility is one of those things that we do when we identify with Christ. And being able to make self-assessments like this is vital. In one sense, impatience is sin because it is a manifestation of the lack of trusting God. But that lack of trust, demonstrated in impatience, can and more often than not leads to additional sin. We mentioned a few earlier: moving forward and making your purchase too quickly, and then failing to be generous with all that we have joyfully, or putting ourselves in the path. Uh, of someone who is in our spouse and winding up engaging in a in a improper relationship, or giving into sexual desires, gratifying the flesh rather than patiently pursuing a spouse or waiting for marriage, fudging the number of years of experience on a resume. These are things that, put us, or if our impatience, put us in the path of oftentimes. So ask yourself that question. Where am I being impatient that is setting me on the path of potential sin? And let me give you one more consideration here because this is important. As we look at the book of Ruth and we see so much of a discipleship element contained here, that Ruth is earnestly trying to follow follow after God and understand what it means to take refuge under the wings of God amongst a people that are not her people, a place where she is a sojourner, we must recognize what our relationships look like in the local church, specifically Buffalo City Church. Again, if you call this your church home, we must consider what it means to have relationships with people in the realm of discipleship. It takes a lot of work to get to know somebody in a discipleship relationship. It takes a ton of work. Nobody's pretending like it doesn't. Again, last week we talked about large, famous, fast things. What does it mean to do something in a large, famous, fast way and how the Bible contradicts that? That's not what the goal is. The goal is to be faithful to what God has commanded to us in Scripture. Getting to know someone in a discipleship relationship is not a large, famous, fast thing. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's messy, painful, and slow. And the reason it isn't happening for many of you is because of impatience. You're convinced that you don't have time for it because you've bought into the mentality that the world has fed you that there isn't a high rate of return here, so I'm just not going to do it. People are low rate of return. It's a reality. And yet we're all called to engage together, point other people to Jesus in intimate discipleship relationships. The world tells you, cast off people if they're a waste of your time. The world tells you, high rate of return is what's important. That's not what the Bible says. It's the wrong perspective. Again, being discipled or discipling someone else is messy, it's painful, it's gross, it's downright problematic. It disrupts our calendars, it blows up our checklists. The rate of return, unpredictable, messy, painful. Friends, if we identify with Jesus, he got this. The way that he went about doing the things that he did was by investing in 12 guys. 12 guys who never got anything that he said, or seemingly, who argued about who was the greatest among them, (laughs) who lived in a way that compromised Jesus' own ministry, who doubted him with frequency and regularity, the one of them who was the closest, who was in the three of those who were closest with Jesus, denied him openly. Jesus didn't just say, well, I'm done with you. You 12 people, you're a mess, and I'm moving on. He didn't say that. He invested he poured himself into these guys. One of them sold them out for 30 pieces of silver and it got him killed. I wonder which one of us in this room is prepared to invest in the life of another if that's a possibility. And yet we're called to identify with Christ. We say things like, Jesus, wouldn't it be better just to fill a stadium with people? Wouldn't it be better to do something, some fancy advertising and host a big event? And yet that's not what he does. Twelve messed up guys get his attention. And that's what Jesus calls you to do also. Not to worry about the rate of return. Jesus wasn't worried. About those guys, there was no rate of return. It was, it was only through him that they did anything worthwhile. Because when they started to do things that were worthwhile in the book of Acts, it was because of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the same Spirit that indwells you if you're in Christ. It's the only reason that anything came of that was because of the work of the Spirit of Christ. And there's a great tension here, friends. We pour our time into other people. And we pour ourselves into them over and over and over again. And we see no rate of return. And we say, my goal is not the rate of return. My goal is faithfulness. That's what Jesus calls us to do. It's not to worry about the rate of return or what we get out of it. But to patiently identify with Jesus and trust God with the results. When that's our perspective, here's the question I'm going to pose to you. When that's our perspective, how could you not have time to invest in someone? How could you not have time to invest in someone? Someone behind me? Hey. Just do the loop, run a lap. How could you not have time to invest in someone? To have eternal impact on the life of another person. To have another person know you with a level of intimacy and be a tool in the hand of God that may prevent you from a plan that puts you in the path of sin. If you're in your teens or your 80s, you don't have time not to do this. You don't have time not to do this. Jesus, God, gives us one way to make an internal impact, and that's by investing in the lives of others. As a Christian who says that he or she doesn't have time for discipleship is the same as saying that we as humans don't have time to breathe air. It should be involuntary action, not something to fit in, but something that's so essential like eating or drinking or breathing that all other pursuits become practices and patience. What if we put that career promotion on hold to be a disciple and to make disciples? What if we put a kitchen remodel on hold to be a disciple and make disciples? What if we put that degree on hold to be a disciple or to make disciples? The question I'm asking is this. What if we looked not to the temporary things, but to eternal things? Friends, there is one way that you can make an eternal impact. It's by investing in the lives of other people. That's what Jesus says. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. He says, set everything aside. Put everything else on hold. That is your mission.